The Destiny Foundation presents Rabbi Beryl Wine's Travels Through Jewish History. This, the 84th tape in the series, is entitled The Six-Day War, delivered May 19, 1987. We hope you enjoy. Probably the most uh, dramatic event in recent Jewish history, certainly uh, uh, ranking as uh, one of the most emotional experiences that the Jewish people have had, has been the uh, Battle of the Six-Day War. The backdrop to the event uh, is complicated, but the basic backdrop of the event was that Nasser, in his attempt to unify the Arabs, in his attempt to uh, achieve his goal of pan-Arabism under his domination and under the domination of Egypt, ran into many great problems, most of them with the Arabs who were not willing to be his uh, client subjects. He was engaged in a uh, bitter uh, civil war in Yemen, in which the Saudi Arabian royalists uh, supported uh, the uh, royalists in Yemen against uh, Nasser and the Soviet-backed insurgents. And it was a quicksand, it was a morass. Uh, over 50,000 Egyptian troops were involved. It was, as we have unfortunately come to learn, another example of a larger power getting involved in a uh, war that they could not win. It's much the effect that the United States had in Vietnam and that uh, the Soviet Union is having in Afghanistan. The larger power on paper certainly should be able to win and prevail very easily, but it doesn't turn out that way. And uh, Nasser had a uh, faltering economy. He, was, uh, he had bankrupted Egypt. He had mortgaged the entire Egyptian cotton crop to Russia to pay for armaments. He was badly overextended. He was in a war in Yemen that he couldn't win. And he sought, therefore, a shortcut that would allow him to achieve all of his goals in one fell swoop. And that shortcut naturally had to do with the state of Israel, namely with the destruction of the state of Israel. But if he could mount a victory over the Jews, then he would certainly become the hero of the Arab world, the leader of the Arab world. He is... Uh, his lifelong ambition of domination could be achieved. Now, Nasser had many enemies in the Arab world, foremost of whom was King Hussein of Jordan. Uh, they called each other the most vile names imaginable, but in the history of the world, calling each other names doesn't necessarily uh, prevent, uh, certainly in the Arab world, it doesn't prevent the, uh, the brotherly embrace and the kiss of alliance. He also uh, was not on very good terms with Syria. Syria had at one time in the early 1960s been a part of Egypt in, a, uh, in an impossible marriage called the United Arab Republic. And uh, Syria had broken away finally from Nasser's embrace. And the military government that was installed in Syria was not anxious to do Nasser's bidding. Nevertheless, Nasser was the consummate uh, politician, uh, diplomat, wheeler-dealer, and he, uh, as early as 1965, had in mind that he was going to somehow deal a death blow to the state of Israel, which would 
forever immortalize him in the Arab world and temporarily at least give him domination over the Arab world. It would eclipse the Saudis. It would give him a chance. Egypt is a country with a lot of a lot of people and little resources, and Saudi Arabia is a country with little people and a lot of resources. You know, your brains and my beauty, and we have an unbeatable combination. All of that played a role in the coming of the Six-Day War. Another role was also played by Russia. Russia always has its own motives, and most of the time they are sinister. It was at the beginning of this time, beginning in 1965, that the first trickle of emigration of Jews from Russia began to occur. Jews were let out of Russia. Most of them turned up in Israel. And, uh, in fact, uh, it was used by Russia as a means of blackmail against its Arab clients. Uh, many a time it was said to the Arabs that if you don't follow the Russian line and if you uh, abandon us and you want to go with the West, and then there was another three or 400,000 Russian Jews whom we will allow to go to Israel. And uh, since the Russian Jews initially who came to Israel were of a very high caliber uh, intellectually and technologically speaking, uh, the Arabs saw it as a terrible threat. And this was a, uh, a type of blackmail that was uh, very effective. In order to keep the blackmail going, though, Russia had to let out some Jews to keep the threat effective. And therefore, what Russia did was uh, begin small-scale immigration into Israel of Russian Jews under the guise of reuniting families, all sorts of things. Now, Russia and Israel then had diplomatic relations in 1965. Russia had broken off diplomatic relations once before with Israel, but it restored them in the early 1960s. And this uh, relationship between Russia and Israel was always a strained and a difficult one. And at the heart of the matter was the issue of the Russian Jews, whether or not they would be allowed free immigration, whether in substantial numbers they would be allowed to come to Israel. Russia also sold arms to the Arabs, to Egypt, to Syria. Jordan always purchased its arms from the West, from England and the United States. Russia sold enormous amount of arms, and Russia sold the most modern and sophisticated equipment. And in order to enable the Egyptians to assimilate that equipment and use it well, Russia sent along advisors. And at one time, Russia had as many as 25,000 military advisors in Russia. There was an, in Egypt, there was an entire Russian colony outside of Cairo. And uh, they were not well liked either by the Egyptian people or the Egyptian army, but they served the purpose. They trained the Egyptian army in the use of these weapons. Advanced MiG fighters, uh, Russian tanks, the latest tanks, many of them were tanks that were even the Warsaw Pact nations at that time did not have in their arsenal. And artillery... And it was tra they were trained in Egyptian, and the Egyptians were trained in Russian military tactics as well. And uh, beginning in 1965, Nasser had a two-year goal of bringing the Egyptian army up to a point where he felt convinced that they would be able to 
overcome the Israelis in terms of numbers and in terms of guns and armament the advantage was all on the side of the Egyptians add to that the uh, fact that Israel had a hard time getting arms in the world the United States then was in the midst of one of its uh, pious periods when it embargoed arms sales to the Middle East to all sides. As a practical matter, it meant that Israel couldn't get any arms because the Arabs were getting their arms from Russia without any problems. Uh, England did sell to Israel. Israel was able to buy chieftain tanks and centurion tanks. England did not sell them the latest models, but the Israelis renovated them. The Israelis took and put on uh, better guns. They simplified the tanks. Uh, the system so far in Israel has been to make things simpler and less complicated because in desert warfare and sand warfare all of the complicated uh, uh, computer uh, type of technology which exists on war machines gets clogged with sand and it becomes useless and therefore uh, relatively speaking more simple the better Today, the situation has changed because of the technology, and uh, there's no such thing as a simple weapon anymore. But in the 1960s, the Israelis were able to purchase these types of tanks from England and to renovate them. They also had some light tanks that they bought from France, AMX tanks, which uh, were little more than training tanks. But Israel struck a deal and uh, that's to the credit of Shimon Peres, that he's the man who negotiated the deal. They struck a deal with France. For various reasons, de Gaulle, at the beginning of his regime, was uh, not pro-Israel, but he was against the Arabs. Eventually, his good sense would get hold of him, and he would become, uh, he would say that the French uh, national interest required that it be on the side of the Arabs. But he uh, initially agreed to a series of arms deals which built up the Israeli army and especially the Israeli Air Force. Israel was able to purchase from France three types of planes. One was called the Fuga Magistar, which was a small training jet that nobody else in the world ever used for combat, but the Israelis would use it for close support combat in tank warfare. It was a one-seater, small, rather slow jet. The second jet that they bought was a Mystère. Mystère was a bomber, French bomber. And the third uh, plane that they bought was the famous Mirage, which today still, in its updated version, is the mainstay of the French uh, Air Force. Uh, the company that produced these planes was owned by a Jew, not much of a Jew. Uh, in fact, later in life, he even converted. He became a Roman Catholic. But at this time, he was a Jew. And uh, he received a license from the French government, and he sold the planes to Israel. And Israel uh, developed them. They incorporated them in the Israeli Air Force. It became the Israeli Air Force, these three types of French jets. For various reasons, the world and the Arabs were unaware of the potency of this plane. They were unaware of the fact that uh, these jets used correctly could negate a great deal of the Arab firepower.
and that uh, the Jets had uh, great uh, potential if used in a uh, in an opportunistic fashion. Also, Israel bought gunboats from France, special small gunboats. Uh, not buying battleships or cruisers or even destroyers, but small gunboats, but very highly mobile and with a tremendous amount of firepower. Rockets, missiles, so that a gunboat, this type of a gunboat, was the equal in firepower to World War II battleships at uh, a fraction of the cost and at a fraction of the size and with a great deal more mobility and less vulnerability to attack the planes and to other surface vessels. By this time, uh, David Ben-Gurion had passed from the scene as the leader of the uh, Labor Party, and the new Prime Minister of Israel after Sharet was Levi Eshkol. Eshkol was a uh, very good technocrat. He was a person that ran the government very well, but he was not an inspiring figure at all. He was not a good speaker, and uh, he uh, had very little of the charisma that would be necessary at this uh, moment of crisis. In world Jewry, everybody, we all rolled along in a fool's paradise that Israel would always be protected and that the world would protect it and that there would be no problems. That was further fueled by the fact that the United Nations had its peacekeeping force present in the Sinai. It had its peacekeeping force present at the entrance to the Gulf of Aqaba to guarantee free shipping. And even though Nasser had violated his word and did not allow any free ship, Israeli shipping, or even any ships to Israel in the Suez Canal, and the state of Israel and the Jewish world felt it could live with that inconvenience, and that the war was not a problem. It wasn't going to happen. The Arabs weren't going to attack again. And that was the uh, situation at the, in the early part of May 1967. But Nasser, in May 1967, on the basis of the reports that he received from his Russian advisors and reports that he received regarding Israeli strength as well, felt that the time was propitious, that he now had an army well-trained enough to mount a bitter and complete war and that he would be able to uh, conquer Israel handily and he therefore decided that he would not wait any longer. His internal problems and his foreign problems were such a nature that he felt that by delaying he would only compound the problem. So in order to solve the problem, he was going to go to war. Uh, the Israelis celebrated their uh, Independence Day parade uh, on the 19th anniversary of the State of Israel in May 1967, blissfully oblivious to what was going to happen in the next three weeks. This was a storm that blew up overnight. It uh, had almost no uh, precedent in the speed that it occurred and in the lethal danger that uh, now was present.
Nasser announced that the Egyptian army was going to go on maneuvers in the Sinai. Uh, going on maneuvers in the Sinai was a violation of the agreement, of the uh, peacekeeping agreement between uh, Israel and Egypt and the United Nations that had uh, prevailed since the end of the Sinai campaign. Again, but Sinai belonged to Egypt, and uh, Egypt had sovereignty over it, and there really was no way to keep the Egyptian army out. So the Egyptian army crossed with great fanfare and in extremely large numbers. They crossed the uh, Suez Canal and came east into the Sinai. Israel protested, but nothing happened. Nasser, uh, in the time-honored manner, uh, it's almost a repeat of the story of Hitler, where he took one country and then he would digest it and look around and see if there were any repercussions, and if there weren't any, so then he would go on to the next move. Nasser saw that nothing happened. The United Nations took no action. No one took any action. So then he moved to the second step. The second step is that he would prevent... Israeli shipping from coming up the Gulf of Su- uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. No ship would be able to sail past Sharm el Sheikh. And he installed guns. He claims he claimed to have installed guns. Later, it was found out to have been a fake. But he claimed to have installed guns, artillery guns, on the point at Sharm el Sheikh, and that any ships that were bound into the Gulf of Aqaba that were headed for the Israeli port of Eilat would be shot at. Now, this was an interference with the hallowed principle of international law, free navigation of the waterways of the world, to which all of the major countries in the world had signed an agreement. They were all committed that such a thing would not be allowed. Poor little Israel went and complained, and everybody told them, you know, to take it easy. They'll try and work it out. Naturally, uh, there were the, the United States uh, w- uh, considered the United States considered sending one of its own flagships up the Gulf of Aqaba to test the blockade to see whether NASA really meant it. But for all the uh, good intentions and good ideas, nothing happened. President Johnson made soothing remarks. Uh, Israel saw a pattern beginning to emerge. The next pattern, the next piece of the pattern was when uh, Nasser ordered the United Nations peacekeeping troops off of Egyptian territory. He said that they were only there at the sufferance of the Egyptian government. The Egyptian government had uh, invited them there in 1957. Now it was ten years later and he was inviting them all to go home. The General Secretary of the United Nations, who then was a Burmese, who knew, uh, agreed that Nasser had a right to do so. We have very bad experiences with Secretary Generals of the United Nations. First Mr. Waldheim, who's our noted friend, and then this Burmese. It just, uh, it just doesn't go for us. I don't think you can get the job if you're uh, <coughs> if you're in good standing with certain peoples in the world. In any event, 
the uh, United Nations withdrew its peacekeeping force. Uh, the Gen Secretary General flew and to Egypt and had conferences with Nasser, but it all came to nothing. And again, you had uh, shipping blocked in the Gulf of Aqaba. You had the United Nations peacekeeping forces removed. And you had a large is Egyptian army in the Sinai moving towards the Israeli border. Now Israel began to take notice. And Israel warned Egypt uh, not to continue along that line because uh, Israel would certainly defend itself and go to war. The United States, as is its custom, issued pronouncements that everybody should, you know, take a shower and two aspirin and rest up and they'll be back to them later. And that really didn't do anything for anyone, except it showed, again, the impotence that of America in a situation such as this, where it really, really was n it had no more influence on the situation. The United States attempted to talk to Russia, to have Russia restrain Egypt, but instead of restraining Egypt, Russia encouraged Egypt. Russia felt that it had everything to gain here, uh, if the Arab states won, it would enhance Russia. If the Arab states lost, it would make them more dependent upon Russia. That was Russia's uh, terribly uh, cynical policy. But the policy was correct. That Russia could not lose. If the Arabs won, then the Russians won. If the Arabs lost, then where else was, were the Arabs going to go except the Russia? Who else was going to save them? And that's exactly how it worked out for Russia. So Russia had nothing to lose by this, everything to gain, and Russia encouraged it, therefore. Now Nasser, in his uh, diabolical plan, uh, wanted that Israel should be surrounded on all sides. It should not be a war of Egypt alone against Israel, because he was afraid, and deep down in his heart, that Israel would be able to mobilize a sufficient army and be able to defend itself successfully against Egypt. He therefore uh, had a conference with the leaders in Damascus, the Syrians. The Syrians have remained until today the most implacable foes of the state of Israel, the Syrians and the Iraqis, far more than any of the other Arabs. And the Syrians agreed to join in the venture. The Syrians agreed that they would shell the Israeli positions in the Galil from the Golan Heights, which they controlled. But they, uh, the uh, Syrians, uh, to a certain extent, double-crossed Nasser because they never sent their army into Israel in the Six-Day War. They shelled, and they fired upon the Israeli targets, and they pinned down a certain number of troops, but they never sent their army in unlike the Yom Kippur War, which we'll also discuss later, where the Assyrians were the main threat almost. What really uh, clinched the matter that there was going to be a war was the behavior of King Hussein. Hussein was afraid that he would miss the train. He saw now that Syria and Egypt, his two arch enemies in the Middle East, had made an alliance, on paper, his military analysts showed him that, e that there was a very strong likelihood that Egypt and Syria would win the war. 
they also convinced him that diplomatically the world would do nothing to support Israel and therefore he was afraid that he would lose because if Egypt and Syria were successful then they would come not only against the Israeli part of Palestine they would come against the Jordanian part of Palestine also and he was afraid that he'd be expelled from the old city of Jerusalem and lose that stature and to lose the trade and the commerce and the tourism therefore when he added it up he had to go into the war the Israelis always mocked him afterwards and they said that uh, in 67 when he should have stayed out he went in and in 73 when he should have went in he stayed out but in, he decided that he would go in and he met with Nasser you have the famous picture of the newspapers of the times uh, how embracing the two arch enemies who said uh, absolutely terribly uh, insulting things about each other and their ancestry and everything else, uh, embraced in the, uh, in the hug of uh, anticipated victory over the state of Israel and throwing the Jews into the sea. And the Jordanians placed their army under the command of an Egyptian general so that there would be a unified command there was one Egyptian general that was in charge of all the armies, and it was all under one unified command. The uh, alliance with Nasser by Hussein sealed the fate of the Six-Day War. Israel knew then that it had to go to war because of the fact that they were now surrounded on all sides and that it was not a matter that would go away. Uh, Abba Ibn, who then was uh, the Israeli foreign minister, traveled the world, stopping at all the world's capitals to enlist the good wishes of the world leaders, but nobody would do anything to stop it. And there Abba Ibn got the first inkling from General de Gaulle that France was also about ready to change sides before the Six-Day War which de Gaulle told, warned uh, Eben that if Israel goes to war, it will lose the friendship of France. Well, Israel had no choice. Uh, Eben had outlined to de Gaulle very clearly. So de Gaulle signaled the change of policy, which after the Six-Day War would become so evident, uh, France thought, uh, sought a uh, means to reestablish its influence in the Arab world. I need not tell you that the Jews throughout the world were frightened out of their minds because here was the specter of the Holocaust happening all over again barely 25 years after the first one. The state would be destroyed. There would, no one would defend it. And the uh, Arabs, in their typical hyperbole, they broadcast all sorts of threats, you know, the... Jewish women, prepare yourselves. Uh, we're going to throw all the men into the sea. You know, everybody. And there was a man by the name of Ahmed Shukeri, who was the head of the Palestine Liberation Organization. That was in its first Gilgal before uh, before before Yasser. Yasser didn't have a beard then. 
before Yasser took it over. So this guy Shukeri, who was uh, a Saudi, and he was a, a foul-mouthed, evil person. He said the worst things, the worst threats, and he said them on public uh, interviews and television, what he was going to do. And therefore, the Jewish world trembled. It trembled. If I, I, I don't know. I don't remember uh, very well Hitler, but the impression that I had is that there was the fear was greater than even before Hitler of what was going to happen. And I remember that we had a day of prayer in uh, my synagogue in Miami Beach. Uh, there were days of prayer throughout the Jewish world. I mean, the synagogue was packed. People walked in off the streets. People who hadn't been in a synagogue Yom Kippur maybe for 25 years. You know what to do with themselves because they felt the imminent destruction of the Jewish people. I also remember as a personal vignette that I don't know what got into people, but the, uh, the, the rabbinate in the United States, the combined rabbinate, all sent out messages that we should all go visit our local priests and ministers to try and enlist public support for Israel. And you look back at it, it was... Absolutely ludicrous. But I remember that we had a very uh, beautiful Episcopal church not far from us, and I tried to get an appointment with the with the uh, rector of the church, and he wouldn't see me. He just wouldn't see me. And I don't think that my experience was uh, isolated. The rest of the world was more worried about the baseball season, about the important things that were going to happen. And the Jewish people felt isolated, frightened, just uh, cut off completely from any solace or hope. The Israeli army mobilized, and they stood mobilized for almost two weeks. And that was very expensive. In Israel, the mobilization, as we'll, uh, I'll point out to you later, that part of the problem in the... Uh, in the Yom Kippur War was the expense of mobilizing the army. And they, they, they had had so many false alarms and mobilized them so many times, and every time you mobilize them, it cost them three or eight or ten million dollars or something. So they decided that this time they wouldn't mobilize. You know, they were going to save the three million. So they were at standing an army at, for almost two weeks. And uh, Dayan, who uh, was, uh, they formed a government of national unity. So, so serious was the situation that they formed the government of national unity. So serious was the situation that the left wing, the Marach, brought in Menachem Begin into the government as a minister without portfolio, but as a minister in the government. I want you to know that Begin, uh, Begin was thrown out of the Knesset with regularity. Ben-Gurion, in all the years that Begin was in the Knesset, never referred to him by name. He said, the person who was sitting next to member of Knesset, Bader. And uh, they brought him in. They made a wall-to-wall -wall coalition. Eshkol made a speech to the nation to be strong, and he broke down in the middle of the speech. It was the most depressing thing imaginable. I have that speech recorded here, but I'm not going to play it. But uh, I, I, it's something to hear, that he's, he broke in the middle of the speech telling everybody else to be strong. And the, no one knew what was going to happen. 
Uh, Dayan took a commanding role as Minister of Defense, and Dayan insisted that Israel strike first, that the only hope in this war was a what is necessarily called a preemptive strike. And in order to put the enemy off, uh, he made an announcement that he feels that the crisis is ending. In another two weeks, they've been standing there mobilized. Nothing happens. He doesn't think anything is going to happen, and that part of the Israeli army is being demobilized, which he did. He sent them home for Shabbos and brought them back Saturday night, also at great expense. But that was part Israel now engaged in this war of nerves. And on Monday morning, in the first week in June in 1967, the war began. I remember in, in being in shul for the first minion in the morning, and people came in and said it. I remember that people didn't go to work that way. People didn't do anything. People just stayed. They stayed in shul. They stayed just people didn't go anywhere. And because of the fact that the Israeli uh, radio went on blackout, as far as news was concerned, during the, almost the first 18 hours of the war, there was no news, and the Arabs broadcast their news naturally. So their news was they're, they're in Tel Aviv, they're in Jerusalem, they're bombing, they're destroying, they're killing. Uh, what happened was that the Arabs believed their own propaganda. Hussein went into the war because he heard Nasser announce that the Israeli Air Force was destroyed. Nasser got on the radio and said he destroyed the Israeli Air Force. So Hussein went into the war. What had really happened was that on the morn that Monday morning, Israel launched a surprise attack and in an hour and a half destroyed the entire Arab air forces of Jordan, Syria, and Egypt. Over 500 planes were destroyed at the loss of less than, I think it was 19 planes for the Israelis. Most of the Egyptian planes were caught on the ground. They attacked at tea time 8.15 in the morning everybody went to get his cup of tea and they caught 95% of the planes on the ground and destroyed them uh, they flew so low they flew as low as 6 feet over the Mediterranean for almost 70 miles I mean that's some job of being a pilot at flying at speeds of uh, sound and over the sound barrier in order to escape the radar and the Arab air forces were destroyed. Once the Arab air forces were destroyed, then Dayan said the war was won already. You still have to fight the war, but but the tactical advantage had changed immediately. Azer Weitzman was then the commander of the air force, General Mordechai Hode, others, and they put across a, uh, an unbelievable feat of arms in being able to turn the planes around in record time, sending them, every plane almost hit its target. It was just, it was a, it was a classic example of uh, the destruction of an air force by another air force. It never had there been such a lopsided battle. Then Israel attacked on the Egyptian front. The, Egypt, the Israelis were divided into three main tank columns. One was led by Sharon, one was led by a man called Yafi, Mordechai Yafi, who later became the head of the Israeli Natural Forest Preserves, and the third was a general by the name of Tal. And these three tank corps 
burst into the Gaza Strip and, and defeated the Egyptian army, encircled the Egyptian army, and burst into the Sinai, and the Egyptian army was done away with in three days. Surrounded, uh, shot by planes. There, is a, there are famous pictures, uh, if you'll see, of the entire Mitla Pass, which is the road, the pass through the mountains in the Sinai, just end-to-end Egyptian vehicles in a line, all shot up, burned, destroyed, trucks, tanks, artillery. The panic was on. Over uh, 5,000 Egyptian soldiers surrendered immediately, and the Israelis were at the Suez in record time. They got to the Suez faster than they did in the Sinai campaign. When that happened, uh, Nasser, there was nothing between the Israelis and Cairo. Uh, Nasser panicked very badly after announcing that he was winning the war and winning the war and winning the war. He all of a sudden was on the verge of losing his country. Hussein, as I mentioned to you, made the error of coming into the war. Hussein attacked in Jerusalem, trying to capture the uh, Jerusalem. Uh, the Jordanians attacked Government House, which was the British uh, High Commissioner's residence, and after uh, and that was the United Nations uh, headquarters. And after a short battle, the Jordanians won it, and then the Israelis counterattacked, and the Israelis took it from them. Then Israel decided that it was going to bring some of the troops from the Sinai, because that war was won already. They were going to bring some of the troops up and fight for Jerusalem. The fight for Jerusalem was concentrated in uh, a number of places. One place was Ammunition Hill, which, as the name implies, was a British ammunition fortress which protected East Jerusalem. And the Jordanians had extensive bunkers and defenses. And the paratroopers on uh, Tuesday night and on Wednesday morning of the war captured a high casualty that that piece when they when they had that piece so then the Jordanians were outflanked they had to move their men the Israelis reached Mount Scopus and then they reached Mount of Olives or the Augusta Victoria Hospital going around the back of Jerusalem around the east side of Jerusalem until finally they had isolated the uh, area of the old city itself and the old city they attacked on uh, Wednesday morning in a uh, in a uh, in a uh, charge through Lions Gate through the northeastern gate of the city, and miraculously the Jordanians fled. They did not really put up much resistance. If it would have been house to house fighting, if it would have been. Uh, any sort of uh, concerted effort if they wanted to make it Stalingrad then who knows what would have happened but the, the Jordanian army fled and in fleeing allowed the Israelis to capture the old city and to capture the western wall, the Kotel Amarovi I want you to hear, I have a record uh, of the Israeli news broadcast the live news broadcast of the capture of the wall and you'll also hear the blowing of the chauffeur by Rabbi Gorin who then was the chief chaplain of the Israeli army. You'll hear the gunfire in the background. You'll also hear the memorial prayer that he made for the fallen soldiers and the weeping of the men as they came to the Kotel. So if you'll listen to this, please.
אני חושב שיקשה להביע במילים את ההרגשה שלנו. ראינו את העיר העתיקה מימיננו כשהיינו על הרכס של אוגוסטה ויקטוריה. נהנינו מלמעלה מהמראה, ואנחנו צרודים עכשיו מצעקות ההתלהבות וההתרגשות כשנכנסנו פנימה בראש כל השיירה. החפ"ק שלנו, על זחל, פרץ את השער, דרס על אופנוע, עבר במחנה ירדני, ועלינו ראשונים ובהתלהבות עצומה, ישר הנה אל הרחבה. מוישלה, סגני, מזה הרבה שנים, רץ מיד עם כמה חבר'ה והניפו את הדגל לכותל המערבי. ועכשיו כל העיר העתיקה בידינו, ואנחנו מאוד מאוד מאושרים. במעלות קדושים, גיבורים וטהורים, 
כזוהר הרקיע מאירים ומזהירים, לנשמות חיילי צבא ההגנה לישראל שנפלו במערכה הזאת נגד אויבי ישראל ושנפלו על קדושת השם העם והארץ בשחרור בית המקדש, הר הבית, הכותל המערבי וירושלים, עיר האלוהים. בגני דתי מנוחתם, לכן בעל הרחמים, יזכירם בסדר כנפיו העולמים, ויצרור בצרור החיים את נשמתם. אדוני ונפלתם, וינוחו בשלום ולשכבם, ויענו לגורלם בקיץ הימין, ונאמר אמן! That uh, dramatic moment, I remember I was, uh, I was sitting in a car in Miami Beach and I heard the bulletin on the radio that the old city fell and the, the Jordanians had surrendered it and moved it. There was an old man from Shul, his name was Mr. Shamitz, all of us show him, I remember it. So he ran up to me and he embraced me so. I mean, Jews felt that, you know, that they were vindicated. For an instant, you at least felt that you were vindicated. And that it was an open, uh, an open revelation of, uh, of a hand in history that sometimes we find hard to see. The uh, freeing of Jerusalem naturally forced the uh, Jordanian army and the Arabs to vacate the entire West Bank. They were outflanked, they were <coughs> harried and hounded by the Israeli Air Force, were pounded across the Jordan River, and along with the Jordanians, about 100,000 Arabs also fled, further compounding the Arab refugee problem. And the great Arab refugee camp at Jericho, if you go there today, it's still all deserted. They all fled across the river. And Hussein, uh, also one of the memorable pictures, uh, unshaven, haggard, tired, beaten, got on television and announced, you know, the defeat. And he cursed out all the other Arabs for fooling him, and they were broken. And the Israelis decided that they would settle the score with Syria now also. Beginning on Friday morning, they brought their troops. And many of these troops are the same troops. They fought in the Sinai. And then the best battalions they brought up to Jerusalem. And after Jerusalem, they brought them up to fight again at the Golan. So some of them fought three times, three major battles in the week. It's a little like uh, the story of the uh, famous main regiment in the... Uh, Battle of Gettysburg that uh, Lee attacked uh, the first day on the right flank 
and they were there, so to give them rest, they moved them to the left flank the next day, and then they were attacked there, and then to further give them rest, so the Mead moved them to the center, and the last day the Pickett's charge was at the center of the line. So the same regiment really fought the whole battle of Gettysburg. A little of that happened here also. The Golan was an impregnable fortress. If you go there today, you see it. It's just unbelievable. Impregnable fortress. Russian uh, <coughs> system of defenses, mines, uh, bunkers, artillery, uh, machine guns. And there the Air Force was of aid, but the Air Force alone certainly could not do it because of the fact that you had to conquer it foot by foot, step by step, grenade by grenade. And the Israelis, uh, in a uh, what was a textbook exhibition of how foot soldiers can uh, dislodge an enemy, no matter how strong, from a defensive position, were able to push the Egyptian, uh, push the Syrians out of all three lines of defenses, and the Israelis captured. Uh, the peak of Mount Hermon. If you want to know what the peak of Mount Hermon means, when you're up there, you can see every plane landing at Damascus Airport. It's 20 miles from Damascus Airport. You can see with the binoculars every plane. You can read the markings on every plane. And today there's a great Israeli radar station there and everything. It's the highest point in the Middle East. The Syrians recaptured it in the 1973 war, and the Israelis in the last hours of the war before the ceasefire, again at great cost, recaptured, recaptured it again. The Israelis pushed all the way to the city of Kanetra. The entire Golan, the northern Golan, the eastern Golan, the southern Golan, all were taken by the Israelis. The, Egyptians, the Syrians were cleared out completely. The Israelis worked almost ten years to remove the minefields just to remove the minefields, and there still are areas in the Golan where the mines have not been removed. And now, from the small little Israel that, uh, that was on the verge of being annihilated, it became the giant imperial Israel. Russia, true to its plan, immediately broke diplomatic relations with Israel. The uh, United Nations voted a ceasefire, which Egypt and the Arabs accepted, because without accepting the ceasefire, their governments would have fallen. Uh, Israel could have captured Damascus and Cairo and Amman, though God knows what they would do with them. And Israel felt convinced in the wake of this great military victory, a victory that, by the way, uh, Israel sustained about 700 a little over 700 dead and about 2,000 wounded. But uh, the, uh, the shine of the victory, the radiance, the glory of the victory was such that it overwhelmed the personal tragedy that was involved. Whereas in the Yom Kippur War, where Israel suffered substan more substantial casualties, the casualties were more bitterly felt because the shine of the victory wasn't there. And in uh, Dayan's famous words, on the next day, on the after the after the Six Day War was over, so Dayan's famous words there, he said, "Well, I'm waiting at the telephone for Hussein to call." The Israelis were convinced somehow that the Arabs would now make peace, that the Arabs would trade 
peace for the territory that Israel acquired. Had the Arabs done so in 1967, they certainly could have struck the deal. Uh, politically, every party in Israel would have allowed it to happen. It would have given back, I don't know about East Jerusalem and the Kotel, but aside from that, everything could have, everything could have gone back. But nobody called. And the Arabs played it true to their, uh, to their, uh, policy, and their policy is always to fight the last war, always to make peace on the last terms. The Arabs said, now we're willing to let you have the partition board of 1948. Well, that was too late for that. Now they were talking about, now they could have had the 1967 borders. In 1973, they said we would settle for the 67 borders. It was too late. But the uh, the success and the victory in the Six-Day Wars, we will see, was the was a great opportunity. Not all of the opportunities that were present then were exploited. Not in the political sense, not in the military sense, not in the social sense, not in the religious sense. But a whole new world opened up. And a whole new uh, viewpoint of Israel also opened up in the world. The Jews were enormously proud. And the non-Jews had a great deal of resentment. And in the United Nations and in other diplomatic arenas, a great deal of the resentment spilled over. And it became, a, it became very fashionable to look at Israel not with, uh, not with favorable eyes, not to be prejudiced towards it. Because in Golda Meir's uh, famous statement, I heard Golda Meir on the fifth day of the war, she came to Miami Beach for a bond drive that uh, it's also one of the most moving scenes that I ever saw. Uh, she was in Miami Beach Thursday in the afternoon, and she got up to speak, and she spoke about, again, the conquest of Jerusalem, and she was one old tough lady, broke down and wept, and the entire audience wept with her so, and people... People, not that they gave money. There was a man that came up and he gave her cufflinks. He had pure gold cufflinks. He said, take it all. You know what to do. So there arose this question, what to do. I, uh, I have uh, my friends from Chicago who went on Aliyah in the 1950s so they always tell me the first Shavuos after the Six-Day War, this was the week before Shavuos. So the first Shavuos, the night of Shavuos for the Six-Day War, so it was the first Yontiv that the Kotel was available. And it wasn't like the Kotel now with the big plaza and everything. It was a narrow alleyway through the Arab neighborhood. And they said starting three in the morning, all Jerusalem walked. You could hear like, like an army marching. Everybody went. And it was religious, observant, not, made no difference. The everybody went. And they, they, I know some of them have told me that they still live from that experience. Some of them told me that when Mashiach will come, so that's what it'll sound like. You know, the, the sound of footsteps in the night from every place in the city. People got up three in the morning to start so that four o'clock when the sun rose in Jerusalem, everybody would be there for sunrise for the Yontav at the, at the Kota. 
Well, it was a dramatic moment in Jewish history, a moment that there will be other moments, certainly, and the other moments will perhaps eclipse this one. But in our time, rarely has a Jew ever had an opportunity to feel the emotions or to experience that type of feeling and sensitivity towards Jewish history and the Jewish past that the Six-Day War provided for. Unfortunately, there's always the day afterwards. The day afterwards, it's hard to assess it. It's hard to take the emotion and translate it into action, into positive results. Uh, hard to produce what should be produced. And that really will be the continuation of the story. Uh, but we have never come back to that level. We've never come back to that, to that achievement, to that time. But in terms of what was achieved at that moment, that has to be one of the high watermarks, certainly, of our generation, and an indication of the capabilities and the hidden resources and even spiritual resources, because there was a great spiritual reawakening for a short period of time, and the unity and the strength that lies within the Jewish people. This concludes the lecture on the Six-Day War by Rabbi Beryl Wine. For information, please contact the Destiny Foundation at 1-800-499-WINE. That's 1-800-499-9346. We can also be reached by email at info at jewishdestiny.com. Shop online at www.rabbiwine.com. Due to copyright laws, we kindly request that there be no duplication of this lecture.